Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This morning, we're going to talk about vision and change. More specifically, my guest today is Maggie Little, director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University. The Kennedy Institute, as you may know, is one of the world's premier bioethics institutes, and Maggie is a leader who's been shaping the future of the Kennedy Institute. She's also a member of the philosophy department at Georgetown, and her research interests include issues in reproduction, clinical research ethics, and the structure of moral theory. I want to welcome you this morning, Maggie, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know that what you've learned about leading change is going to be helpful to everybody. So welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you, Kate. Well, I have been wondering if you could give us, just to start us off, a perspective about what is the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. Tell us, um, tell us all about it. Well, it's a, a research and teaching institute uh, here at Georgetown University that specializes in the field primarily of bioethics, which is um, a whole host of issues around the ethics and public policy issues around medicine and healthcare, uh, issues in the environment, and emerging technologies. So our scholars uh, look at issues that are range from perennial issues around social justice and healthcare or issues in death and dying, all the way to cutting-edge and very fast-moving topics about uh, cloning or nanotechnology. Wow. And how long has the Kennedy Institute of Ethics been in place? Can you give us a little sense of its history? Well, this year we are actually celebrating our 40th anniversary, uh, which puts the Kennedy Institute as the world's oldest academic site for doing bioethics. It actually sort of helped to found the field, um, the first scholars that formally came together to university to study it. And we also uh, have the world's um, most amazing comprehensive library um, in bioethics materials that started off as one shelf on a pine uh, bookcase and that grew into a $20 million federal investment into um, collecting materials and information for the public. Wow, and that all happened over the course of 40 years. Yeah, um, yeah. From, from one pine bookshelf to the present moment. Exactly. That's 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 great. It's nice to hear hear about that. Now, Maggie, I know you're a philosophy professor, and that you, um, in my conversations with you, really are passionate about um, 
philosophical dialogue and, and, and debate. You know, what drew you to philosophy? And, and tell us a little bit about that. You know, what really does a modern-day philosopher do? Well, I, I started in philosophy. I was really one of those kids who uh, was just sort of never stopped asking the why questions, you know, that two-year-olds drive you crazy with. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. one definition of a philosopher. Um, what is the most important thing in life? Um, what are ethical responsibilities to others? What's, what is it to live a, a good uh, human existence? Uh, and I still remember the day I found out that there was this thing called philosophy. I was actually uh, headed to University of Iowa, which is where I went, my local university, and got out the course catalog. And there are these courses in this thing called philosophy. And I remember thinking, I'm not alone in the universe. Um, <laughs> and one of the really exciting things to me personally about finding philosophy is as much as it's about these very big and deep and enduring ideas, uh, these days it's also such a valuable field that intersects with the real world. So trying to give uh, really clear, insightful analysis about the values that are at stake with those issues in things like the environment um, or emerging technologies, philosophers now um, are in most hospitals, uh, some of them even wearing a beeper, uh, to do ethics consults, um, or our staffing uh, agencies, uh, the Department of Energy has an ethicist. So people who are really embedded in real-world issues trying to help folks in the trenches um, make good decisions. Wow. How does, how does this background of yours come into play as you lead the Kennedy Institute, Maggie? How do you draw on it? Well, of course, some of it is that the Institute is devoted to philosophical topics. So being um, uh, somebody who is dedicated to excellence in the field, of course, helps uh, when you're trying to lead an institute that's devoted to the field. It it was also surprising to me um, as I took on the directorship of the Institute, which is, I've been here almost 20 years, but took on the directorship about three years ago, that a lot of being a leader uh, drew on the sort of analytic skills of being a philosopher, you know, trying to really dig down and figure out the structure, uh, whether it's a business structure or a mission structure or um, how a workflow was, was moving or not moving. Um, so it turned out to be uh, intellectually fascinating for me as, as, as much as anything else. I wonder, you know, as you, as you um, look back, you know, in this, are you celebrating the 40 40- 40 years at the Kennedy Institute? Do you have a celebration of that planned, or have you already done that? Uh, we're in the planning process now. Uh, yeah, it's very exciting. It, it is. It's a, it's a very significant uh, milestone. It's, you know, just as someone who works with organizational leaders and uh, thinks about the um, challenge of growing and sustaining and developing reputation and all of those yes. things. 40 yes. years is very significant. I'm curious, you know, in the 20 years you've been there, you know, what has changed at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics since you first began? That's probably a huge question. Well, that's all right. We like huge questions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is a shift uh, from, I guess, two shifts now that I think about it. One, um, moving not only from sort of developing ideas and theories, but um, really applying those theories into very direct policy roles. So 
um, increasingly the faculty who are on our hallway are not just inside the gates of Georgetown teaching a class or, you know, at their computers doing research, but they're really out there um, in leadership roles, especially around Washington, D.C., which is something of the epicenter of bioethics, at least in the Western world. So we've... uh, uh, I've had, for instance, two instances of visiting scholar over at the National Institutes of Health. So seeing on-the-ground conditions of figuring out really, really tough issues in how you conduct clinical research on humans in an ethical and responsible manner. Turns out Mm -hmm. to be... um, you know, not easy and incredibly dedicated people there. Or another of my colleagues um, works at the National Advisory Committee for uh, Distribution of Organs. So uh, really trying to figure out how to develop a system for uh, distributing this incredibly scarce resource uh, so that you balance things like giving organs to the person that will get the most years use out of them, which would... uh, uh, tend to privilege healthier people, balancing that with wanting to help the people who are the least worst off, which is helping the people who are you know, closest to um, not making it without the organ. So just seeing these, these very deep ethical issues play out on the world stage in very real ways. And I guess the other change that I've, I've noticed and very much um, work to also increase as I've been director is... Um, getting our institute and our scholars really engaged with undergraduates who are so uh, hungry and eager for bioethics. It's, I mean, they're hanging from the rafters to get into the classes. And you can see why. I mean, when we teach a class in bioethics, our students come in and the syllabus is the headlines of the newspapers that they see or the blogs they read. Ah, so I you, see. you get students who are already, I mean, you don't have to motivate the class. They come with motivation, and then what you're offering are tools to think about it in a hopefully deeper way or, um, uh, as one of my colleagues calls it, complexify the issue. Don't try to solve the issue, but really get people to understand, get the students to understand, uh, you know, the science behind the headlines and um, the how policy is made in the real world and the values and ethical issues that are really at the core of it. So that if nothing else, even if they don't always know the answer on the tough questions, they know how to think about it in a much deeper way, how to talk about it um, across divisions uh, in a civilized way, and to sort of become citizens of the world because I say to my undergraduates often, um, your generation is going to face an extraordinarily exciting time, but an extraordinarily difficult time. And you need every tool we can give you uh, before you leave the gates. You know, I love this idea of, of preparing them to become citizens of the world, um, given these extraordinary times that they're growing up in and, and stepping out into. And of course, it's graduation time on college campuses. So, um, you know, the yeah. idea of preparing young adults for the for the future is uh, right upon us. Right. You know, and I, I wonder, you know, as you as you um, talk about this, there's so much dynamism here. You know, there's so much application of um, ethics and and philosophy um, to the real world. And I often think that, you know, it's 
uh, it's not about teaching people the answers. It's about helping them learn how to think and how to, you know, how to go deeper, as you said. How exactly. To I think that's the bumper sticker. Because if we just think we're teaching the answers, uh, the questions keep changing. So that, mm. that only gets you so far. It's yep. really teaching somebody how to take apart an issue, um, how to read between the lines. Um, you know, look at, so I'll give you an example. I was just finished teaching um, with a, uh, a wonderful colleague, Randy Bass, uh, who does innovative teaching methods here at Georgetown. He and I got together to, to try to uh, teach a class in bioethics that would really work on uh, empowering students to think through these issues. And as we were teaching the class, um, we got this present, as Randy likes to say, which was the controversy about um, Obama's uh, 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 health care uh, being interpreted to mandate insurance coverage of contraception uh, without an exclusion for religious institutions um, like Georgetown. And here we say we got a present because what a great real-world case unfolding before our eyes as the class is happening. So we stopped and ripped up the syllabus and spent three weeks <laughs> Um, getting the students to dig very deep on the topic. And what we said to them is, you may think you know what the answer is. If you do, we're going to just let you know that whatever you think the answer is, you don't know, because this is actually really complicated. And we did a survey where we took anonymously their sort of initial views of the topic, and we had this gorgeous bell curve range from, you know, very liberal to very conservative and everything in between. And then we set them to developing a web resource for the, for the public that would teach what, a, what responsibly you'd need to understand to come to an opinion about the topic. And wow. it's amazing what they came up with. I mean, they've got annotations of Obama's videos and, and, and uh, uh, pulled together laws all over the country. And uh, it, it's amazing. And they were amazed at what they were able to do. So one of the students said, we did our best work because you didn't tell us what to do. You invited us to be ethical entrepreneurs. Ooh, which I, love I that. just loved, by which he meant <laughs> we were asking them to go out and create something to help people think ethically. And said the sky's the limit. And we gave them all sorts of resources to help them, but then they ran with it and did far more with it than we ever could have, you know, thought it was reasonable to assign to them. So the difference between what you can get out of people when you uh, give them the support to do something, but then also give them uh, room to run with it, as opposed to mm. giving them a series of, you know, okay, here's the assignment number one, assignment number two, assignment number three. Wow. Well, it's very, I mean, the energy and excitement, just listening to your voice as you talk about this, it's it's almost palpable. I think it sounds like the most amazing class. We, we had a very good time, I have to say. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, we're going to take a break, Maggie. When we come back, I'd love for you to tell us more about the Ethics Lab and uh, about the, the changes. We're going to move into the topic of change at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. So we'll be right back. We're all 
always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm speaking with the director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University, Maggie Little, and we're talking about leading change and the value of articulating a vision during times of change. But before the break, we were actually talking about the exciting um, environment we're living in today uh, for people who are interested in not only thinking about ethics, but also thinking about how to be how to be concerned and, and effective citizens examining issues deeply. And I, I love that part of our conversation, Maggie. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the class you did with Randy Bass. And I know that the two of you are working on something called the Ethics Lab. I'd love it if you could just tell us uh, briefly what, what the Ethics Lab is. Yeah, uh, something near and dear to my heart right now. So Randy and I met up. He is director of an institute at Georgetown called Candles, which is Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship. So looking at high-impact approaches to pedagogy, and I'm leading up a bioethics institute where to make any progress, you have to be able to think outside the box and think across disciplines. We met up and uh, clicked and put our heads together and started to ask a question. What would it look like to design from the ground up a way to teach undergraduates ethics that gives them the most meaningful and transformative experience you can. And so we spent about a year um, talking, brainstorming, sharing a glass of wine, brainstorming, <laughs> workshopping, mm-hmm. assembled a big uh, academic team of people who do things ranging from how to do super cool things with blogs and wikis uh, uh, in qu- classes, um, getting information specialists in bioethics who work with uh, students at the beginning of a class as opposed to just the end when they're thinking, oh, what am I writing that? that term paper on, 
mm-hmm. and how to structure a class around thinking as opposed to answers. And uh, the class we just finished teaching was the first pilot of the ideas that we had. And uh, as a big believer in pilots, um, this really is about R&D space for new educational um, approaches. So uh, as we told the students, they were um, hopefully willing participants in this grand experiment that we were going to try a lot of things, and we knew that some of them would fail because that's what a pilot is. And we wanted them to help us invent what did work and be very blunt about what didn't. And it was just extraordinary. They just jumped in with, you know, uh, uh, all 52 feet <laughs> mm-hmm. class. And um, we're taking the, the we're going to debrief in a couple of weeks, uh, take the lessons learned and keep forging ahead. And the ultimate goal is to um, have ethics lab style elements available to every undergraduate at Georgetown. Uh, one of the very cool things about one of the reasons I love being at Georgetown, a uh, striking signature of Georgetown is it mandates an ethics class of every undergraduate. Hmm. Uh, and that's from its Jesuit uh, heritage of whatever one's religious affiliation, just the idea that ethics is everywhere. And so every undergraduate should explore it in a meaningful and, and sustained way. So it's a place where, you know, given that our undergraduates are going to be doing this, how would we do it in a way that changes their lives? Wow, what a big assignment to give yourselves, and what a, what a great experiment. Like yeah, that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I want to go back to um, maybe three years ago when after being at the Kennedy Institute for, I guess, 17 years at that mm-hmm. point, you stepped into the role of director. Um, tell us what you found and what you saw and what you did. Well, you know, first I, I have to tell you, Kate, that I was a, a reluctant um, uh, convert. Uh, if you ask most academics whether they would like to lead the unit they belong to, most of them will shudder and roll their eyes and quickly walk away. And I don't think I was that bad, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. I, when I thought of taking a turn as the director, I thought mostly of what I would have to give up, you know, protected time for research. I wouldn't be able to teach as much, and I love teaching. Um, and I remember when uh, my predecessor, who's a, a really good buddy, Madison Powers, did share with me like a year ahead of time, okay, Maggie, I'm not going to do this a, a fourth time. You know, I, I think you're gonna, you know, it might be your turn. I remember being utterly depressed. <laughs> I have to confess. And it took me about three days, uh, and I kind of started to climb out of it. But what really changed it, um, oddly, about four months before uh, I was due to actually take up the reins, we lost most of our funding. Mm, my gosh. So a ton of our funding was uh, through grants and contracts with the National Library of Medicine to support this, as I mentioned, amazing library uh, to gather resources and build a database. And the funding for that was gradually coming to an end. We'd seen the smoke signals. Um, and it came to a complete stop um, uh, sooner than we thought might happen. And the strange thing that happened... Uh, I suddenly got excited in being a director. You mean when the funding stopped? Yeah. You got excited. The adrenaline yeah, not started. That I wasn't happy. <laughs> believe me, I was not happy that the funding stopped. That was a, you know, this is, right. but I realized 
I wanted to know how to get us through this crisis. So that, so I, I realized only when that hit that I was thinking of being the director as sort of an administrator, which is, of course, a wonderful, much-needed thing to do, but I don't think I'd be a great administrator. Hmm. I don't think my strengths are with running a well-oiled machine smoothly. Hmm. I think I could do an okay job. I'd probably you know, maybe give myself a, maybe a B, maybe a B plus, but maybe a B minus. But if it's about directing and being sort of leadership, which is what's really obviously needed at a time when it can't be business as usual, and you really are going to be looking at big change and thinking through and managing the change, that I think is something that I'm, I'm a good director for this point in the Institute's history. Wow. So, so the funding went away and you found yourself ready and excited about the challenge and ready to provide leadership, not just be a status quo kind of administrator, but actually, um, I don't know if the word save um, the Kennedy Institute is right, but when funding goes away, sometimes um, survival is at stake. So tell tell us, what what did you do? Well, I have to say I was extraordinarily lucky uh, because um, being at Georgetown, it is a place that is absolutely committed to ethics. It's not just what they say as a bumper sticker. It's not just a pretend mission. I mean, it's Georgetown in general and President Jack DeJoy in particular. I mean, he's committed to ethics down to his toes. Um, and I was very lucky in that he, um, as well as other leaders on campus, really knew what a resource Georgetown had in this institute. So they had this extraordinary good fortune that um, it was an institute that had uh, benefited from certain uh, money sources, but the, the the value of the resource was well understood to the university. So I didn't actually, I didn't have to sell them on the merits of the place at all, which is, you know, I, that's why I say it's extraordinarily lucky. Usually that's mm-hmm. what one spends all your time doing. Mm-hmm. My job was just to tell them what it would need to keep it going and, in fact, to take it to the next level because, uh, for most places, of course, you have to, to change and grow to really stay even in place, but even more so with bioethics, because it is a fast-changing environment. And to have as illustrious the next 40 years as we had the prior one, um, we really did have to think not just about um, uh, sort of cost-cutting and saving our pennies in order to survive, but doing a absolutely 360-degree assessment of what do we have that is better than anybody else in the world? What do we have that used to be fantastic, but the world has changed and there isn't a place for it or a need for it in the same way? Um, what, what could we be um, in five or ten years? Uh, and then how would we make that work and What's the business model for it? What's the budget for it look like? And so I, I couldn't have been luckier. Um, uh, the, again, leaders, uh, President DeJoy and the, the provost, Jim O'Donnell, I just couldn't have um, been more supportive and really let us run with, with new ideas. They're very willing to be kind of organic in that way. And I remember the, the first year, that was the year of this sort of 360 degree where I, I mean, amongst other things, I inherited a library, right? And mm-hmm. many librarians who are wonderful in this amazing resource. I'm not a librarian. I'm a, I'm a philosopher. 
And I had to learn, you know, I just sit down and learn everything about libraries and this one in particular. I remember for, for a whole year, I went to every meeting with a big art pad and colored markers, and drawing, drawing pictures and diagrams and visuals of the analytics of what people were telling me. You know, what, what, is, this, what is it that you're doing? Why? How? Um, what's the logic behind everything? Um, uh-huh. Did a lot of trading favors with people around the university, asking advice from everybody uh, that I saw. Uh, baked a lot of brownies uh, to give us thank you <laughs> presents. And then at the end of the year, we really had... Um, I, you know, I did a report, a really, really lengthy, here's what I see. Here's what it can be. Here's the change, I think, about the directions to grow in. Here's what it's going to cost. And then it's above my pay grade, you know, as a decision about whether that's something Georgetown can invest in, because I don't see the biggest picture that they do. But what I can do is tell them what they can't see, which is the -the on-the-ground assessment. This is what it would take and what I think... Georgetown would get from it. Uh, and so by Meg, the way, I can't just bake brownies. Here's what the budget is. Good, good for you. And, and uh, you know, it strikes me as a, a uniquely uh, female leadership strategy, the baking of the brownies. <laughs> but I like, I like the two, metaphor. I <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a lot to be said for it. Um, you know, as, as I'm listening to you, you know, you just – there's some things I want to point out for those people who are listening. The first one is that, you know, if you've been listening to our show over time, maybe you've heard other leaders do the same thing, which is when faced with what seems like an almost insurmountable or even insurmountable challenge, they embrace it instead of duck or run from it and see themselves as fortunate. And I can think back to other conversations we've had, Maggie, with other guests where people have said things like, you know, I... I moved toward my fear, you know, I yes. embraced the challenge, you know, and so you, you saw the opportunity, but then you had this year, and I want to pull this out for people listening, you know, this year of um, studying the asset, if you will, yes. um, studying the, the strength, the history, the, um, and asking these really important visioning questions. What, what could we be in five or ten years? What's the business model for it? Uh, what do we ha- What do we do better than anyone else? And how do we grow from there? You know. So this is visionary leadership in action. Um, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, I mean, that was year one, and I know that there have been two years since. We want to hear more. So we'll be right back and look forward to hearing more from you about this whole transition. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you're ready to find your personal brand, look no further than Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio with host Monica Magnetti. To achieve success in business, who you are and how you're presenting yourself makes all of the difference. Some of the topics discussed on our show include personal branding, what it is and how it will help you. We'll discuss the aspects of this, including how to create a brand, drive traffic, and increase SEO. Brand Your Fire, Get What You Want Radio airs live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. 
With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. This is Kate Ebner, and I'm here today with Maggie Little, who directs the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University. Maggie is sharing her story about leading change at one of the world's premier bioethics institutes. It's a fascinating story and a perspective we can all learn from. Maggie's just been telling us about that first year of getting her bearings and really studying um, how to not only not only preserve all of the great um, all the all the great assets is the word I, w- I was using, but all of the amazing um, features of the institute, but actually also how to take it into the future. Maggie, let's go to that moment there where you um, made the business case, if you will, for investing in, in the Kennedy Institute and uh, sort of looking at it in terms of its future as well as its past. Tell us more about what happened there. Well, I think one of the things that made... Uh, I can see in retrospect a big difference, and it wasn't something I was doing strategically. It was just what I honestly felt, is that as I was doing the review, I really did feel like the question was what was best for Georgetown. I'm sort of a fiduciary of, you know, here I'm stepping mm-hmm. in uh, to this role, and it's at a time of crisis, and, you know, we could just end and go gently into the night and say, what a great 40 years, um, you know, and if, if that was best for the university, you know, I was sort of willing to go there, I'd be personally extraordinarily sad. But uh, in looking at everything we saw, and I mean, we brought in outside, you know, I talked to everybody in the hallway, and we also brought in outsiders who, living in D.C., you can (laughs) trade favors or other people trade favors to get, uh, you know, amazing Mm -hmm. people and get Mm -hmm. great advice. Mm -hmm. It it seemed like there was an extremely strong case to be made that this could uh, it already was something so special to Georgetown, so signature, a jewel in its crown, um, and that we could, with some shifting, really make something, uh, you know, make it sustainable. And I think, again, that sort of my taking my job is just being the voice of reality, um, you know, just saying, let me tell you in unvarnished terms how I see it, uh, was was really, really helpful. So after that first year when they sort of gave the, you know, the thumbs up of let's, let's do it, let's continue with this and see where we can take it. Then year two was a lot about, you know, I think of it as if year one was the learning and exploration, year two was about developing. So developing skills on the hallway just had, you know, amazing people, um, developing ideas for initiatives, uh, um, developing uh, connections between what the scholars were doing and the library uh, was doing. And 
assembling a creative team, you know, and giving them room to play. So I uh, was able to hire uh, a couple new people who, uh, in a sense, their job was to be creative. I mean, creative in an academic way. But, you know, hiring that kind of energy and there was uh, energy for them to play with on the hallway already of people who are thinking, you know, very, very cool ideas. Um, my colleague Madison Powers, whom I already mentioned, has got an amazing idea for a, a, a blog on what he calls the few problem, food, energy, water, uh, which is uh, this intricate, complex set of issues that we're going to have to be facing. At any rate, so there was this energy around initiative and innovation and taking a few risks, like I mentioned with the class with Randy, the idea of piloting and taking that very seriously. So here's one other example. I, I was just reviewing um, a, a project that, a, a pilot that lasted about four months with, with one of my great um, team. And she was saying, here are the things that really didn't work, and here are the things that really didn't work, and here are the things that really didn't work. And then she said at the end, you know, if I were to do it again, um, I think what the model I'd have, and then she outlined this stunningly genius way of doing it. And I said, the pilot was a complete success. <laughs> I, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. You, you know, we, we tried it at a small level so you could see and try out the first idea wasn't the right one. And you just, because of that experience, were able to figure out it, a really outside the box model that, that was extremely exciting. So it was just like time to celebrate. See, there you go again with your, um, I don't know, your, your ability to see beyond the, the challenge and into the opportunity. You know, I'm curious, you know, to, to year two was all about developing. Um, where did these ideas come from? I mean, had you been thinking of them all these other years you'd been at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics or had you, did your team generate all these creative ideas that uh, emerged as part of what you're piloting now? You know, it, it is a great question. No, I didn't have these ideas before. It's not like I was sitting around thinking this is what I'd do if I were director. I was just glad I wasn't. I was just grateful to the other directors for leaving me <laughs> you know, to do my my work and teach my students. But um, it, it, it's sort of like Obama in nanoscale. You know, never waste a crisis. That that when you when it when it's become when it's clear to everybody that some there has to be some significant change that. Can be a chance. Can be very scary, and there were, you know, there were a lot of uh, downside. I mean, to put it mildly, we reorganized and had to um, uh, end seven positions. So, I I don't mean for a minute to, to make it sound easy, right? That this was without extraordinary cost, and I still remember the day that you know we. After, of course, doing lots and lots of preparation, lots of communication, lots of preparation, lots of communication, um, announced which jobs were ending, and then everybody then had a chance to um, interview for the remaining positions. But I came home just, you know, not as depressed as the staff, of course, but still very depressed. I remember my husband saying, if you weren't, then you shouldn't be director. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not that it's all the excitement. There's a lot that's just very, very tough about it. That having been said, when change isn't a choice, it can 
liberate energy to populate possibilities, as opposed to, as you said before, status quo, where you say, my job is to do the current, the, the current mission as well as I possibly can. That's one kind of really great energy. Um, this is a different kind of energy. It's change is um, not a choice. So it means you are invited to let your imagination run. And then if there's sort of a culture of uh, uh, welcoming that imagination, not that we get to do every idea we think of. And that was what <laughs> year three has been a lot about. Okay, you know, we, here's the good news. We have so many good ideas. That's how genius we are. We have so many great <laughs> ideas. We can't possibly do them all. So now we're mm-hmm. going to talk about prioritization, and that's what you know, year three is about. Let's figure out and focus. Um, yeah. And then realism about what it takes to actually implement those fantastic ideas and what's a realistic timeline and managing expectations around that, um, my own included. Uh, I, uh, it, so it's not, um, it's not just about being generative, but it is about always being welcoming of generativity, as long as people understand, then there's a separate choice about whether we can commit to doing it. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, it's it's interesting to hear you talk um, in the way you are about the years. You know, year one about creating uh, new possibilities out of the strong past, and year two about really developing, um, developing team, developing concepts, developing pilots, uh, developing connections, and year three about focus and prioritization, you know, and my own experience with leading change is that it is a three-year process. And in year four, you refine and you go go deeper. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm writing it down, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it really does take, it's in the third year that you actually are are in the new, you're sort of in the new paradigm, if you will. Lovely. Yes. Yes. Did you find that? Yes. Yes. I said the first year, uh, we're turning a ship, and ships don't change. You know, ships don't turn quickly. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, we were going north. Now we're, you know, I don't know how to say the degrees, but you know, we're a little to the right. You know, now we're more, and now we're je- def- definitely uh, you know, south by southeast or whatever. And we well, don't even excellent. necessarily know, you know, what's at the other end of it, but we know it's the right direction. Well, you know, I'm curious. You know, so often when we're, when we're doing work with leaders who are coping with change, there's resistance. You know, the people who have been there a long time, especially can, not everybody, but sometimes feel like, wait, you know, this is, um, this is difficult. It, it may be risky. Uh, we might be losing some of the, the good things we've had. Have you experienced any resistance and what have you done with that? Well, I think it, I, I just have to say, I, I think the Institute had such, especially the library had it was such a tough blow, uh, that, Having um, and the work they did was really core to the, you know, the whole um, enterprise of the institute, and it, it is work that was applauded. I mean, people from across the globe would use their their website um, and, and still do, um, and they're just incredibly famous. And then to have uh, this kind of uh, assault and insult of you know losing funding is is just I think extremely difficult. Um, and understandably so. So there, there is it wasn't definitely, a choice. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a 
honoring and grieving a loss. You know, it's not just, okay, let's try something new. It, I mean, this is, uh, they helped to start a field with what they were doing, and they did it so beautifully and like nobody else. And you know, the great thing is uh, the ideas that they've got can be, you know, used in the, you know, this generation of technology and search engines and things like that. So we can take those ideas, take the mission of the place, which is to be, you know, the, the, the site for the most trusted resources in bioethics and information specialists who are, they're like Sherpas up the Himalayas. <laughs> they can show you how to get there, you know. We can, we can still do that. It just is going to look different. You know, the platform is different. The applications are different. But the mission, in that sense, is the same. You know, we're going to take a break, Maggie, and I would love to, when um, we come back, really ask you to share your vision in particular, because I think that um, there was a future you could see and that perhaps others on your team could see as well that you were able to uh, articulate and move toward. And our show, as you know, is called Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. And so I want to help people see how um, a vivid description of a desirable future can really help people during a time when uh, the rug's been pulled out from under you, so to speak, um, when you have to make change. You know, what do you do? Do you scramble? Do you fall back? Or do you embrace a really uh, powerful and exciting vision for the future? So let's, when we come back, we'd love to hear your vision and talk a little bit more about what you've learned that might be helpful to those listening. We'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. 
Welcome back. This is Kate, and I'm talking here today with uh, Maggie Little, director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, and she is really sharing a process of leading change. And I don't even know that she's sharing a process so much as her process, which is exactly Mm -hmm. what we want. So I wanted to invite you, Maggie. You know, we we've been talking about uh, your sort of completing year year three um, and moving, you know, into or actually where are we? Yeah, completing year three and mm-hmm. moving into year mm-hmm. four. And as we're thinking about um, this future that you're creating, could you tell us in um, in detail uh, the, the desired future, the future possibility that you're working to create at the Kennedy Institute? Give us a picture of that. So I see the Kennedy Institute as a place that will hire, um, continue to hire scholars who are, uh, powerhouses who are um, thought leaders for the world in bioethics, um, a place where uh, we not only have the resources of a library in terms of journals and books and all of that, but it's a library that's integrated with the work of the Institute so that the librarians and the students who learn there are helping to produce knowledge uh, and mm-hmm. not just consume it. Mm-hmm. And a place where students come and uh, turn into ethical leaders, whether they go on to be leaders in their community and neighborhoods or their family or leaders in their professional lives as physicians and nurses and scientists or leaders on Capitol Hill. Um, but people who will take uh, what they learned at Georgetown in terms of uh, responsible ways of thinking about ethics, which does not mean always agreeing, because reasonable people disagree about these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how you take that kind of deep respect but deep uh, learning and actually go out and try to make good decisions. And so what it means in the concrete is uh, you know, plans for staging hires and for fundraising for um, our wonderful ethics lab initiative where we um, have wonderful plans for uh, new physical space that will marry with the, the current library's a stunning historical reading room and we have a space that can be its modern complement where um, it would be the uh, in my dreams, the R&D hub of ethics education for Georgetown and modeling for the world. Um, so there are a lot of concrete initiatives uh, that we've got um, uh, down and tracked um, and uh, with project managers on them and uh, generals in charge and foot soldiers helping and uh, clear on where we are with different stages. Some of them are in the exploratory phase. Some are being piloted. Some have been piloted. So we try to be very, very um, uh, explicit and, and self-aware about where we are with each with each initiative. Um, you know, some are the glimmer in your eye, and some are actually oh, how to finish this metaphor? Um, birthed and out squalling <laughs> in the world, but um, maybe some are even going off to college. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I understand. I understand. You know, we often I often find that I'm using that kind of uh, metaphor language as well when talking about. Um, 
making a vision real. You know, it's it's a it's a midwifing process, and mm-hmm. then it's a exactly. delivery, and then it's raising this thing you've created exactly. um, until it can exactly. stand on its own. So, yeah. well, I, as you know, as you're as you again as you're talking about that, I, I'm you're sort of talking, and then I'm talking about what you're saying. But, but what I'm hoping our listeners are able to hear is, you know, this um, this big vision of the kind of place, the kind of um, think tank, the kind of educational experience that the Kennedy Institute of Ethics is. And then within that, um, the project plan, if you will. So mm-hmm. there's this big, motivating, you know, aspirational vision you've just described for us. And then there's, what is it you said, what does it mean in concrete terms? You know, this right. translation of that into the strategy for actually building it and the goals and the objectives and the teams and the projects and so on, the timeline that's inevitable. And, you know, so often, Maggie, when people are working to um, take their organization to the next level, we tend to be very mission-focused, and then we tend to move into strategic planning and forget the articulation of the inspiring vision. And so Mm. what's really terrific is that you've just given us You've just naturally referred to both, you know, the the big vision and then the plan that goes with it. Um, Why do you think it's important to have a big vision that's articulated like that? Well, in our case, at least, it's because it's not a linear matter to figure out how to get there. Mm -hmm. If it were, I wouldn't be as interested in it. So there are some businesses where it might be that kind of, I know exactly what the end point is going to be, and now I'm going to be, you know, this great... um, uh, general in charge of the troops, figuring out the extraordinarily complex logistics of how to do it. That, that's one way, but that's not what we're doing, and it can't be what we're doing. For us, it's much more of a creative process. So there's a, a large mission about what does excellence look like? What does being a leader here look like? What does innovation look like? And that means uh, you know, setting that forward, but then letting all of us play with those ideas so that when people come forward with, I think I might have a new idea. Again, it doesn't mean we can drop everything and do it, but boy, does it mean I'm going to drop everything to listen to it Mm -hmm. because uh, that's helping to populate what that mission looks like in concrete terms. So, and so if we don't articulate what, what type of thing are we trying to do, we won't know what to be creative about, but we really do need the creativity. Um, So there's a lot of, you know, what would it look like if, or what would it look like to be excellent with bioethics um, yes, uh, yes. education? Uh, what, is it, what does it look like to, to um, be able to, to enable our faculty, our scholars, to run with their ideas um, in an unfettered and exciting way? How can I support that? Wow. You are naturally using these powerful questions so effectively, and I love this. What would it look like? What would it look like? That's what visionary leadership asks. You know, is, uh, for those listening, it's that it's it's giving yourself the space and the time to ask and then answer that question um, again in detail. And you know, Maggie, you did something that I'm really glad you did, and I bet you don't even know you did it. You described your vision in in present tense. And when you said our vision is that we are this and we have this and we are doing this, and that's another kind of tip for those of you out there who are working on articulating vision. Don't talk about your future as if it's um, a goal, like we will do this or Mm -hmm. we are going to try to accomplish that. Talk about it like it's already here 
And I think when you do that, there's so much more energy and it's um, easier to actually envision it and to, to picture it the way that Maggie's talking about here. So Maggie, I'm interested to know, you know, what important advice have people given you along the way that's been helpful to you? In our I've last gotten minute. lots of uh, fantastic advice. I, I mean, one that sticks out to me just right now is I remember sending, um, I think it was beginning of year two when I'd gotten my feet on the ground and I had a better sense of the structure of, you know, the university and what, how to do things, et cetera. And so I thought I was being very, very responsible one day and sending an email up, up, the, up the chain um, to one of the CFO folks that, you know, giving the heads up that something was on the horizon and, you know, uh, just wanted to let them know. And, and he, he emailed back um, uh, to my amazing, amazing genius senior administrator Maggie gave me the problem, but she didn't give me the solution. And mm. I remember thinking, I get it. My jo- I can't always do the solution because it, it might be above my pay grade, but that part of what uh, uh, they'll want to leader, the kind of leadership style they uh, applaud is somebody who will say, I'm going to tell you what... what uh, I think you should do, and then, of course, it might not be my decision. So uh, it felt very empowering. I mean, it, I suppose it, it could have felt, you know, when you hear that story, you might think that sounds uh, burdensome, like, oh, God, now I'm supposed to figure out. No, it, that's actually empowering. It's you are there on the ground, and with what you're seeing, what do you suggest? Um, Perfect. Yeah. You know, that is a great piece of advice, and that is that I hope I hope people are taking note of that. I would love to... Um, reap the harvest of what you've learned and maybe include it in our article this week in our newsletter. So please, if you're listening, do sign up. We want to say a little bit more about what Maggie Little has learned, but our time is up. So Maggie, thank you for being with me today. I really enjoyed having you here. Oh, thank you, Katie. It was a complete pleasure. Well, thanks everyone else for tuning in. And as Margaret Wheatley once said about change, change is intensely personal. We've been listening to Maggie talk about her personal experience with it. And I hope that you have benefited greatly from listening to her story. Thank you. Have a great week. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.